0: Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that's sweet enough already. My name is Corey Hazelhurst. I'm a partner in propaganda with Steve Haynes. Hey, Cory. This is the third and final of our podcasts in August, looking back at past episodes that we've done. So we've done one looking back on the first year of Boris Johnson's premiership. The one we had last week was on Huawei. And this week, this is the oldest one we've done, actually. So this was back. Way way back in the early funny episodes, we are talking with John Cotton, friend of the podcast, about the sugar tax. And we thought, given that for the I, I I I'm struggling to count, Steve, I think it's the 573rd time the government has talked about taking action on obesity and the sugar tax in particular. We thought that we'd listen back to what we said about a sugar tax back in 2016 and update that in the light of recent events. So we'll pause. there will then be the clip from four years ago. You'll hear our very, very merry theme tune, courtesy of Dave Depper, and then we'll begin our reflections. Something else that we could do that I think was proposed by George Osborne. Do you remember George Osborne? What, What, you mean
1: that esteemed editor of
0: the... That's, that's, yeah, journalist of the year. Before he entered journalism, he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. There is no end to his talent and ambition. He proposed a sugar tax in, I think, the last budget before he was so unceremoniously dumped from office. Bittersweet. (laughs) Some evidence from a few different countries that have introduced a sugar tax that... It would work. There's a few different European countries. Actually, in the 34 states in America have introduced it as well. And I think actually in Philadelphia, in the week recording this, a lawsuit's been brought up by a few companies who make fizzy drinks, who put a lawsuit saying that it's illegal to tax fizzy drinks or something. So that might be an interesting thing to, uh, to look at. Um, but there's the, a lot of the places you expect, so places like Norway and Finland are putting sugar taxes. Um, France have as well, who's, who kind of tend to be more, I suppose, social democratic in the way that they uh, approach policies like this. But then there's, there's interesting ones as well, like Australia you wouldn't necessarily expect. They have a 10% tax on soft drinks. Um, Hungary as well doesn't really strike me as a social democratic bastion. And, and Mexico as well, because Mexico... 70% of Mexican adults are either overweight or obese, and so there was a, a tax. It's why a bull wall would be so effective, because the can't have <laughs> to get over it. Yeah. <laughs> do you two have any particular thoughts on a, a sugar tax and how effective it might be? I've got mixed views on it. I think absolutely it is
2: something that would be legitimately part of a set of measures that you put in place to tackle obesity, but you do need all that other uh, collective support and that sort of cultural shift stuff to happen. Um, my one worry with a, with a sugar tax is that you end up with the burden being placed on the poorest, and it's not actually the, the, the sort of like evil corporates responsible that, that bear the burden, it's actually those who are just struggling to get by at the bottom. So, unless you've done all that, put those other steps in place so people have got affordable alternatives, the danger is that you just end up again clobbering those who are already struggling to get by, and you're not actually shifting the behaviour.
1: My, my natural instinct whenever you say it and then we should tax it is to kind of wriggle back a little bit and go, really? Taxes are often kind of utilised as a, we can we can fix this if we only have more money and 90% of the issues in politics, whether it be the NHS or, or education or whatever. Money helps, but it's not going to actually solve all the problems. So when it comes to, to the sugar tax, my, my first reaction is, eh, really? But... At the same time, I value policies that work. In fact, that was basically the entire uh, argument that myself and Corey had on a previous episode, where we were talking about whether you should pay people to achieve certain ends and things. In fact, we discussed yeah, pay people way, to read books, yeah, lose weight or quit smoking or, or whatever. And then my entire argument for, for that was: if it works, why would you just, just uh, not consider it? And if sugar taxes work? You'd be foolish to not at least consider it. And I think if it's part of a, as, as you said, John, part of a broader mm. uh, package, then I think it could be very effective. The, one other concern that I would have with this is that almost certainly from a kind of a political spin perspective, the way that this would be brought in and sold is it's we're going to bring in this sugar tax and we're going to use the extra money from it to fund X. You know, probably the NHS, given given it's a health-related thing, mm. and that's absolutely fine on the face of it. But then you remember that actually this is a syntax in effect, and this, with syntaxes, the uh, the main aim is not to raise revenue, but to uh, change behaviour. And if you're changing that behaviour, then that revenue stream is gone or it's decreasing. Because for this policy, for that policy to be successful you're having fewer and fewer people buying fizzy drinks, and therefore you're getting less and less money from it, which means you then end up with a funding black hole, saying, well, where's this... where we've said, well, we're going to bring in X many million mm. from this tax, therefore, where's that come gone from? That that money's still needed to fund whatever it was funding, but it's not going to be there anymore because if the policy's been successful, we've all stopped that sinful behaviour. And I think that is something that is very likely to happen with the introduction of something like this in the UK, if it were to be introduced, I think it probably would work. There's recent evidence in the form of the plastic bag 5p charge that that has actually changed people's behaviours. People are now cutting down on the use of uh, plastic bags. Um, so these things can can work and do work. Um, but it really boils down to the actual kind of nitty-gritty details and whether or not there's anything else with it at the same time. Because, as you say, if it's just that on its own, well, all you're going to do is end up taxing
0: poorer people more. In terms of the politics of it, I think you're probably right. The reason why a a sugar tax, I think, is different to what we're talking about last week, not to dredge it all up again, (laughs) but in things like when you're using it for, say, getting kids to read books, you're introducing market values into places where where they would crowd out non-market norms, whereas the market for fizzy drinks is quite obviously already part of a functioning market economy. What you've got with fizzy drinks and sugar is you've got an example of a clear negative externality in that the obesity costs the NHS £5 billion and collectively, out of taxpayers' money, we are paying for the cost of obesity. So there's there's a cost imposed on people eating sugary foods and drinking fizzy drinks, which is not factored yet in the price of that good. And so I think the clear economic case for a sugar tax is there is to meet Mm. that negative externality. that's why i find it really really frustrating that so-called free market think tanks like the adam smith institute always denigrate a sugar tax there was there's some things from them that say but a banana's got more sugar than a can of coke so why don't we tax bananas to which you're obviously, well it's it's a piece of fruit, isn't it, you morons. Like, what is wrong with you? I think the other thing in terms of the, the market for sugary drinks at works like a proper market economy should do. If you do increase it if, a, if you bring in a sugar tax, it does decrease the amount of fizzy drinks that people buy. As we talked about last week, market incentives in some parts of education don't work like a market. So if you pay people a set amount for achieving a certain grade and you increase that amount of money, it doesn't mean that more people then achieve that grade. It doesn't work like you'd expect a market to. It, the research from the sugar tax, at least in the short term, from these countries I mentioned before, is that actually it does lead to a decline in the purchasing of sugary goods. In Norway at least a 6% decline, in Finland it was nearly 5%. To offset what you were saying, John, mm. about that the cost might be brought on the poor. Certainly in Mexico, where this has been brought in, the decline of consumption of sugary drinks was highest amongst the poorer income households, which maybe does suggest that, hopefully, in terms of the burden, it won't hit the poor the hardest. It's not like, say, you're taxing cigarettes and people are addicted to smoking and they'll still buy the cigarettes regardless of the tax. People's habits change. And actually, in Mexico, there's been an uptake of the amount of bottled water that people are buying as a result of this charge being brought in, which is hopefully a sign that it won't end up being a regressive tax. The other thing that's happened in Hungary is apparently manufacturers have altered their standards and I wonder if that's maybe the point of a sugar tax. As you say I think in terms of the politics of it ring ring fencing that money for a particular purpose is the wrong way to go about it, you have to present it as a syntax. tax. But I wonder if you do have a tax per sugar, which leads manufacturers to change their standards, that might be a, a good outcome. Mm. It ha- it's happened with salt. The amount of salt in our bread has declined by 40% since the 80s. It's not led to a consumer outcry. People have just incorporated it into their diets. And I think if sugary drinks had less sugar in it as a result, of this tax. That's a win for everyone, I think.
2: Wouldn't wouldn't disagree with a lot, lot of that. I think it's just important where the where the burden falls. Mm. If it's falling in the right place, there are you know alternatives. Clearly, with with sugary drinks, there are alternatives to the the full fat Coke, and you can do a lot of that really good nudge work into yeah. by by using the tax in that sensible way. Right? Yeah. What...
1: and again to kind of take this kind of back to where we kind of started the discussion with marketing and things like that. And I think one of the uh, the interesting things would be is that when you're talking about full fat coke and things like that is that diet coke isn't viewed as a manly drink for instance it's it's a drink which a lot of women drink hence why coke had to bring out coke zero because blokes weren't buying it genuinely it's absolutely bizarre clearly made zero sense you might say indeed um there there needs to be some kind of work done somehow it's not regulation because you can't really regulate effectively this sort of stuff. You can't regulate every single kind of thing for, for lack of a better term, toxic masculinity or, or, or whatever. Not in a very mm. effective way. There needs to be some way to change the discourse within those kind of campaigns. Now part of that will just be different people getting involved. Uh, you know, younger people are eventually rising up the ranks as they get older and progress their careers and adapting the, the, the situation to new markets and the new situations they find themselves in. Because... Marketing is a very adaptive uh, sector uh, as it needs to be to survive and actually be effective. If you, if you really want to start seeing things change, that's where it needs that there needs to be a way for some kind of collective engagement that would look to, to shift. Not, not necessarily the rhetoric, but the way that people engage with brands
0: and the way that brands engage with people. That discussion on discourse and consumer behaviour I think leads us really nicely to our chat on climate change and personal responsibility for climate change. So maybe we should leave this there. I have to admit Steve in the process of trying to prepare for this episode I got very confused because I'm now not sure if actually Boris Johnson is going to do a sugar tax or not because there were lots of briefings about how Boris Johnson wanted us to lose weight and, and tackle obesity as part of the battle on coronavirus to misuse a war analogy once again uh, but I'm looking at a sun Exclusive from the 15th of July this year, which now says that the sugar tax has been axed after a, a Sun campaign that's called Hands Off Our Grub. Um, yeah. Apparently, Boris Johnson is ruling out sugar taxes as part of his post-coronavirus battle against obesity. So I think there's a
1: difference between as essentially a, there is a form of a sugar tax in, in place in British law already. It came in in 2018. What the Sun was campaigning against was a kind of like an expansion um to that because i think basically that just kind of hits fizzy drinks what rather than say you know sweets chocolate or those sorts of things um so johnson definitely seems to have ruled out kind of like an expansion of the sugar tax to include further things i think but um the remaining thing as far as i'm aware is is still on the books and isn't being discussed about being removed which if they did do that that would be an interesting approach given it would just create a myriad of, of bad headlines and questions of so basically saying well you've said you're trying to t- tackle obesity why are you getting rid of this piece of legislation that helps tackles obesity I, I don't think that's going anywhere what johnson is basically just trying to do is earn some brownie points with the sun more than anything else um, by not kind of going down what the sun dubs the nanny
0: state approach yeah it's something that is we, I, I sort of highlight in the clip, given that I, I actually talk about negative externalities. I think I was trying to pretend that I knew stuff about economics, which I <laughs> promise I'll never do again, listeners. But um, I think the sugar tax is interesting because one of the, it, it does seem, you know, Cameron Osborne promised action didn't really happen. May promised action didn't really happen. Johnson now is promising action. And it feels like to me. There's a bit of a schism here in the Tory electoral coalition. That, on, on the one hand, you have, as I say, these very sort of, uh, they want to call themselves free marketeers, but actually they're sort of low regulation people like the Adam Smith Institute. You know, they, they just believe that businesses should be able to do whatever the hell they like and damn the social consequences. Whereas, actually, if you're a sort of one, one, one nation, Tory type or compassionate conservatism, or actually believe the free market should work properly in that there are these costs born of this action that we need to, to fund, then a sugar tax is actually quite a sensible public policy. And it feels like that tension's never really been fully resolved. And so we're seeing it again in this latest Farrago. Yeah, absolutely.
1: There is a definite kind of like issue for for the government and the conservatives and that an awful lot of the things that will actually help tackle um, uh, issues like uh, obesity are what they dub as big state solutions. They are nanny state solutions, uh, which are largely viewed as anathema by a significant portion of the conservative right, um, which does create this kind of paradox for them like the government needs to do something about this because it's creating problems that the government uh, needs to get a handle on but they can't do any of the useful things for it because they're going to get criticized by their own side so they are between a rock and a hard place
0: really i'd say yeah it's and it's something that again we talk about in the in the original episode it needs to be a collective effort. So this series, this episode is part of a series on personal responsibility. And one of the things that we sort of, certainly John makes a point of making in, in the episode is that this isn't just about individual responsibility. It is about a collective action that we need as a society to, to fix this. And I think we talk about maybe a sugar tax being part of it. We talk about things like portion sizes being part of it as well. Um, something The Sun talks about, calorie counting as well um, and so that this idea of restaurants putting calories on them um, on menus and restaurants and there's a kind of there's an interesting book review actually in the guardian by a chap called tim specter who talks about calories and he's not a fan of calories i think for a few different reasons but something that struck me which was interesting is it says that calorie estimates are often less accurate than we'd hope because studies show the actual calorific content of a meal can deviate 200% from the number on the menu. And the deviation is always an underestimate as well. So it's it feels like it needs to be part of a holistic package of, of measures, which doesn't really feel like is there at the moment. No, absolutely.
1: I mean, the government's approach to this is almost focused just on like, again, I think it's focused on headlines. It's very much just... Hey, we know that there is a link between suffering through uh, coronavirus and and obesity. Well, let's let's do something to fix that. Uh, but we've not necessarily got a major plan to help do that. What we seem to have is a, more of a focus on let's get people biking and cycling to work. Okay, that's that's fine. That's great. That that's a good thing. But it's also a very kind of like middle class thing. An awful lot of people aren't in a position where they can bike a bicycle or cycle into work because guess what? They're already overweight and they're not fit enough to do so. So what you don't have, uh, as you say, is that complete package. So uh, one of the programs I think got scrapped into the coalition back in the day um, was one of, was uh, essentially uh, in giving people access to, you know, local um, swimming pools, gyms and things like that for, if not for free, then for kind of like more um, subsidized rates what you need to be looking to bring those sorts of things back in so that it's actually a lot easier for people to go out and get some exercise in in some form obviously pandemic causes all kinds of issues
0: on that front but let's let's ignore the pandemic for a second and pretend we're actually back in the fact that local and and the fact that local councils don't have enough money are going to end up closing all of their local leisure facilities anyway well well, again, this is this is, this is my point, though, like a proper
1: response from government would go, OK, we need to get calories under control, get people exercising more. Where can people get exercise? Well, we can encourage people to bike to cycle. We can encourage people to to run but also we can encourage people to go to the gym. Their nearest gym is probably going to be a council one that might be under threat. We need to make sure that's being funded. That is what a proper strategy would look like, but that is not what the, the conservatives are providing. They are just provided a couple, a headline with a few policies, which aren't necessarily going to make a uh, make much difference at all. And, and weirdly, the, an awful lot of their headlines are kind of like running counterintuitively to other policies. So you mentioned, obviously, kind of like the calories on menus and things like that, which, yes, probably aren't accurate. But also, if you're trying to get people to eat healthier, that means eating out less because you can't control how many calories are in that food. Like if you, if you get really into cooking, you basically discover 90% of the things that make things taste good are either salt or, 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 or butter. And, uh, you know, so it goes, all of those things go really heavy into cook, into cooking and food that gets produced in restaurants. And as a result of that, they're really calorific. Um, which means that you're trying to encourage people to go out to eat because it's good for the economy and we need to, you know, order a takeaway to, (laughs) to, uh, to, 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 to save the high street. But at the same time, you're saying lose weight. Those are like you can lose weight by eating the things you want. Like it is possible, but at the same time, what you need to actually do there, if you're doing this properly is say, okay, let's look at, um, you you know, the size of those portions, but they're not really looking at that. They are looking at some things like buy one, get one free deals and banning those, which, isn't necessarily a bad thing like it used to be i don't think it is as bad as it is uh, bad now but it used to be you you order a pizza from somewhere and you get given another one of the exact same size and it's like well i've just ordered like a, a 10 inch pizza i've now got 20 inches of pizza to get through and like you go well, oh, that's fine i'll have that tomorrow well that's like that pizza highly calorific you're eating it two days in a row now suddenly you're over your limits and that's how you end up gaining weight Um, But the government isn't necessarily kind of taking this full kind of view on a lot of things. They're just kind of picking out a few headline policies uh, and a few kind of like sound bites, I suppose, and running with that because that's what people are going to remember. And then because the nature of this is it's all about you losing weight. If it doesn't work, we can they can just say, well, it's an individual's responsibility to do so. It's not on us.
0: They're going to try and have their cake and eat it. This might well, but if, is. But if they have their t- cake and eat it, then surely that's a failure in the public policy terms if you're going to try and take action on obesity. Something we didn't talk about in the episode four years ago, uh, but might be worth just at least touching on now, I think, is the the wider point about poverty in and, and the nature of work in all of this as well, I think. And you've seen bits and bobs about this on Twitter, um, which I suppose is the nearest we have to real life at the moment. Uh, I think it was, was it Anunziata Reese mogg who was, forget what it was exactly, but it was something like, um, everyone can afford to eat healthily because fruit and vegetables are cheap type argument, which I think it just misses the point on a number of things, partly of actually costs of fuel, <laughs> the fact that if you are juggling two or three jobs in a young family, you might not have time to cook. I think there's a lot of cultural capital there as well that actually um, I think we have done podcasts are looking at places like Amsterdam who've tried to take very, very stringent action on tackling obesity. and one of the main ways they've found is to actually try and teach people to cook and often teaching parents to cook with their children as being a way around it as you say it feels like they are leaving it to say oh well it's your responsibility but they're not empowering people to actually make that choice they're just essentially forgetting that some people are in a cycle of long work low wages if you are time poor and don't have a lot of money you are going to buy a ready meal for a couple of quid that is full of goodness knows what because there isn't the time we're supposed to do anything else yeah. And
1: it also just boils down to the fact that even if you are not in, in, in poverty or kind of like struggling, the reality is like, you can still be very time poor. Like I, I have a very good paying job, but a lot of the time due to the fact that I, I do lots of other things, I will often find myself in a position where I'm like, Oh, I don't have time to cook because I'm just doing other things. And, you know, and I am, you know, these days as middle-class as they come uh, as a result. Um, so like, and I, as a result of all of that, I'm overweight. Like, I need to lose some lose some pounds. That focus on time and, like, the ability, uh, time and ability, not necessarily in terms of skills or having them, but just the capacity to deliver a healthy meal, that is something that I feel like they are definitely overlooking at the moment, and certainly the discourse is overlooking because
0: this is another area in which proper action isn't necessarily going to be taken because of the extra stress of the pandemic I would say. We've already talked about how you know the bandwidth of the government was concentrating on Brexit and Covid and I do wonder if this is going to be another one of those issues which is um, kicked into the long grass because politically it's just another issue in which I think Boris Johnson's more sort of active interventionist instincts are probably at odds with a lot of his party and a lot of his backbenchers
1: yeah absolutely i'd
0: agree with that we let's let's end it there then on that happy note of optimism so this was the i say the third and final look at um at some of our past episodes so if you want to hear any of our other past episodes you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast we will have an episode that comes out next week which is probably going to be uh sort of a clips of episodes um basically a best of the b-sides i think is how i like to call it so often short clips from episodes which we will sort of package together hopefully into some one glorious technical or half hour podcast and then from september we will start to produce other excellent podcasting content on a weekly basis and if you want to support us producing a mixture of excellent and very good podcast on a weekly basis you could visit our patreon page couldn't you steve yeah,
1: you could indeed you can head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne for us a few quid every month and uh, you'll get access to uh, unique content such as uh, episodes blog posts uh, as well as some discussions uh, between ourselves and our kind of like regular talking heads uh, on the podcast uh, yeah head over take a look throw us some money it all goes uh, towards keeping the podcast running and yeah, we hope to see you there.
0: Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. Our Twitter handle is at nochampagnepod. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. And Dave Depper composed our theme tune for good times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy potting.